0: Good day. This is Dave Nicolai with the University of Minnesota Extension a crop cast program. This is the first of a weekly program where we're going to take a deep dive into a lot of agronomic research projects and extension efforts by the University of Minnesota. Today is June 1st. My co-host uh, today is Dr. Seth Nave. And Seth, do you want to give a little bit of background in terms of the effort and what we're looking at doing with this particular podcast that we're going to call Minnesota Cropcast.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yeah, you know, um, there's a million uh, podcasts out there, and so we're not going to pretend to to be all things for everybody. And but hopefully that we can be something for somebody. Um, Dave and I really like chatting about uh, crop conditions and 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 working with uh, researchers on on all crops, and so. Uh, we decided to start a little podcast um, this spring. We started talking about current conditions, and I think just to make this a little bit more um, have a little bit more life to it, we're 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 planning to branch out a little bit over uh, this summer as a template, at least, and and talk to researchers um, uh, here at the University of Minnesota and and elsewhere about their their research programs and what's what's happening uh, uh, currently with those programs, but also. Spend a little bit of time uh, talking about what they're seeing out in the field and uh, what they're hearing from farmers as they're out traveling around doing their research. So um, I think it's I think we have a nice template here, and uh, we're really excited to get going. So we're planning to do a weekly podcast uh, through the summer, and then let's see how it goes. If we get enough listeners, we'll we'll keep on rolling through the winter.
0: Well, certainly we've made some progress, uh, Seth, in terms of corn planting and soybean planting. I know the last USDA. Uh, crop report came out. It was current as of last Friday, but it indicated uh, quite a bit of progress uh, in, in terms of corn, probably only the replant in some of those situations, particularly uh, where we had severe flooding in that comfrey area and maybe some up in northwestern Minnesota. Uh, soybeans uh, are moving around, you know, say so, you know, 70, 80 percent. And again, in areas where they were uh, not being able to be, be in, in the field, say for any particular reason, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the snow and so forth and the colder conditions in northwestern Minnesota and, of course, some of those areas that drowned it out. But uh, by and large, uh, very good. I know the alfalfa is coming off here very regularly on the, on the first crop from what i see in a lot in southern Minnesota. So we're making um, a lot of progress in in terms of that, and, and we'll be talking about our sugar beets in just a second here. But any other comments in terms of uh, the weather conditions? Uh, we do know it's dry, Seth.
1: Yeah, I guess there's you know there's plenty to talk about in the weather, but I I think one thing um, you know regarding the the crop progress, we did make really good progress on soybeans and made good progress on corn, and we're basically right around uh, our five year average for for the tempo this year. So I think we should feel good about that. We're not we don't we're not behind anymore. We had a little little uh, gap early on where it was either too cold and and snowy up north or just too rainy in the south to get a lot of crop planted. So we caught up. But then this temperature that we hit uh, during May really pushed this crop along that did get planted. So I think that was probably what farmers noticed is, um, you know, we had soybeans popping out of the ground within a week, uh, three, four, five days, soybeans were coming up. So, um, you know, uh, that, that, uh, that's a nice, uh, aspect to this little bit delayed planning is that the crop gets really going and we've got, we have stands that look equal to an early planted stand. The challenge of course is for getting pre emergent herbicides and things like that on. Um, and, um, you know, one thing before we talk a little bit about the dry weather is I've, I have a lot of research down in South Central Minnesota and that area that, got hit by three um, you know three weeks ago by seven to 10, 12 inches of rain. It's really tough down there and they've a lot of corn replanted um, and so um, we're definitely going to nick our, our yields uh, for state corn yields uh, because uh, we're, we're, we probably lost a little bit of nitrogen. We have delayed uh, planting with some of the replanting effects. so it's going to be a challenge down there.
0: Certainly, I think that's the case in, in, uh, in those particular areas where it's excessive uh, uh, everywhere from, like you mentioned, Waseca up to that, uh, that comfrey in that south-central South area uh, as well. Uh, we look, though, on, on the southeast and other areas, we're having uh, you know, three-leaf to uh, four-leaf corn already, so uh, quite a lot of variability as, as you move across the state uh, with that. And in terms of moving across the state, we have a lot of different crops. I'd like to introduce our first guest, here on uh, Minnesota CropCast, a uh, co-worker of ours, uh, Dr. Tom Peters. um, And Tom is a a University of Minnesota and North Dakota State University uh, extension employee. He straddles that Great Red River back and forth, uh, working primarily in the area of sugar beets, uh, sugar beet technology with an emphasis on weed control. So uh, good morning, Tom. How are things in Fargo this morning?
2: Well, it's a bright, sunny day. It's warmer than normal, and guess what? The wind's blowing, which happens a lot in in Fargo.
0: Well, I think we'd like to step back here in terms of uh, development of this podcast and program. And, Tom, maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit and give yourself um, a couple of minutes here, a platform about your own uh, background and experience, where you hail from, um, how you got to where you are uh, this morning here. Give us a little introduction of yourself and uh in in some of those situations on your project as well
2: thanks dave and i'll be brief with my background so i'm i'm a minnesota native i grew up in stearns county minnesota um stock center is my hometown um stock center area is synonymous with dairy farms and my parents and my relatives were dairy farmers And um, that meant growing a lot of alfalfa hay, oats, and corn to feed our cattle. So agriculture was always a part of my background. When I went to college, I wanted to get into agriculture, but I wasn't really sure how. And um, I think the, the, the moment of inspiration for me was an assistantship. I had um, a part-time job with um, a company and I learned that you can do research in agriculture. And that, that really triggered my interest in getting into graduate school and um, uh, trying to get into a career doing research. So that's what I did. I, I did my master's degree at the University of Nebraska after graduating from minnesota and then my phd is at north dakota state university so my mentor and major professor was dr alan dexter so when i finished up you know it's like everybody else you got to find a job and i really enjoyed extension i enjoyed working in sugar beets but there weren't any jobs so um i went to industry and um the way it turned out i landed at monsanto company and um, i started in the state of indiana in 1990 um but a couple of years later i was in st louis working with a new new idea that was just getting off the ground called biotechnology And my interest and my experience was with herbicide tolerance. So I worked with a number of glyphosate or Roundup tolerant crops, um, including soybean, corn, and, and sugar beet. So my Monsanto career, which was 25 years, was mainly in the biotech area and mainly working with herbicide tolerant crops. So I retired from uh, Monsanto in 2014 and I, I made a commitment to myself that I'm going to end my career where I started. I want to do some science. I want to work in the university system. I really want to work in extension where uh, my first interest and passion was um, through the tutoring of Dr. Dexter. So um, I uh, took a position at North Dakota State in 2014. And as Dave said, um, the beauty of the position in Fargo is it covers sugar beets in Minnesota and North Dakota. So our philosophy is, is there's nothing unique about the Red River. Growing sugar beets east and west of the Red is the same. Um, But what it gives me is uh, about 630,000 acres to work with, or about 50 to 60% of the total sugar beets in the United States. So my main responsibility is for weed management, although I also work in some general agronomic areas as well.
0: Well, it sounds like you've had a long career, obviously, in agronomics. Uh, And I think it's always interesting to have that industry experience. And back in Extension, I have had a similar format uh, in terms of my own career. So it it gives you a perspective in terms of uh, uh, situations and and crops and and things uh, to develop uh, with that. Well, if you look at this year, Tom, uh, every year is unique. And certainly we, we have some uniqueness here and a lot of variability, Um, We should explain that, you know, the the sugar beet acreage in Minnesota, you know, it's not just obviously in the Red River Valley, but it's in southern Minnesota, western Minnesota as well. Um, How are things developing this year? What are some of the challenges if you go from north to south in terms of getting the crop in the ground and and kind of like where are we at now uh, uh, with that? But maybe we can go back in time here a little bit and, and talk about how the growing season's been so far.
2: Well, let's talk about the perfect year, Dave. In the perfect year, we would start planting sugar beets on April 11th. And if we could, we'd like to have all of our sugar beets planted during the month of April. Well, I think in Fargo, I think I had three feet of snow in my front yard on April 11th. So obviously, that didn't happen. And I, to my knowledge, I don't think we had any sugar beets planted during the month of April this year. So um, later planted sugar beet means that you have to contend with some of the earlier germinating weeds. So one of the biggest challenges with sugar beets is weed management. And part of that is because sugar beets is a slow growing and a low growing crop. Um, Early on, especially, we struggle a lot to compete with weeds, especially if weeds and sugar beet germinate and emerge at the same time. So now it's the first of June, our crop has been planted. So we uh, really made tremendous progress Um, during the month of May to get our crop planted. Um, Some planting occurred the first week of May, but most of the planting occurred in the second and third week of May, and then we finished up um, um, the the last week of, of, of May where we're at right now. I would say that Southern Minnesota beet sugar area was the area where we planted first, but that area also got some of that same rainfall, you know, heavy rain events that you've been alluding to already. So um, they probably started first and finished last in terms of getting the crop in the ground. So,
0: what is the impact uh, when you look at the fall and look at the harvest for this late planting? It, do you think this is going to be? significant or is it just a matter of logistics and having to deal with multiple crops in the fall if we if we look at yield sugar content etc
2: well one thing about sugar beets that's different from corn and soybeans is we always start our stockpile harvest on october 1st so we're growing you know we we grow a crop that doesn't have a relative maturity date It's a date when we decide to take the beets out of the ground. So what we do, Dave, is we give up some yield. That's the only penalty that we have from delaying the plant from mid-April to, let's say, mid-May. However, um, our own data would indicate that if you can get your crop planted Anywhere from April, let's say the 11th, like I mentioned earlier, through the 10th of May, you have the potential to maximize yield. So in many respects, planting in maybe the second or third week of May, as we did this year, doesn't penalize the grower um, very much at all. And it gets back to what I mentioned earlier, Dave. Um, it means that we've got to be really good about managing weeds, which are competing with with some of our, um, um, our our earlier planted sugar beet crop.
1: And that was actually my question for you. It's it's interesting. You've got a you've got a crop that kind of takes off relatively slow. You've got a challenge with herbicides. Um, um, you know, effective, effective modes of action. Um, and, and so it's interesting that you really try to target that early, early planting because you know, those weeds are coming along, but at the same time, you've got slow growing weeds early on too. So I, I, you have a really, really interesting crop in terms, from a weed science standpoint, in terms of the biology, um, and the environmental effects on, on emergence and growth, and then getting that canopy up so that you can manage those those weeds, um, you know, more effectively naturally um, through the through the canopy. So it's it's really an interesting interesting crop to me for sure.
2: You know, so so let's let's talk a little bit about weed management, Seth. Since you brought it up, so and and we really play off the biology of both sugar beet and water hemp. So I'm going to identify water hemp as our most important weed in sugar beet production in Minnesota and North Dakota. So there's other weeds, and we'll maybe get to those, but water hemp is the one that most of our growers um, struggle with the most. So our our strategy is to plant early, to use a pre-emergence herbicide, and idea being to um, hopefully, get the sugar beets out of the ground so that we can make our two leaf application, which is a combination of Roundup for burn down and a chloroacetamide herbicide for water hemp control. So, um, we're using a layered approach for water hemp control, starting with a pre emergence at planting. And then the use of these chloroacetamide herbicides. So, the, the dual magnum products outlook and warrant once sugar beets get to the two leaf stage. Now, back to the biology of, of water hemp. We don't see a lot of water hemp in April. Um, we typically can set our calendars to see water hemp anywhere between May 5th and maybe May 15th. To germinate and emerge. So ideally, we can be making our, our two-leaf chloroacetamide herbicide application during that window. This year is later, so we're going to have to rely on the pre-emergence product to you to control water hemp until we get um, sugar beets to that growth stage. Um, we have very little to choose from for post-emergence um, pigweed control and sugar beets. So um, the only good product that we have right now, and some on this uh, on this that are listening in may argue if it's really good, it's to use ultra blazer herbicide once sugar beets get to the six-leaf stage. And we'll use that to control any escape water hemp that we have from the pre emergence or post emergence herbicides that are pre emergence for water hemp control. So that gets back to the white elephant in the room, Seth and Dave. It's our ability to get these products activated by rainfall once we get them applied. And that's really the struggle that we're in right now. We're in a drier pattern. We're in a pattern where our rainfall events are more sporadic. So getting enough rain to get these products activated into the soil is really what's going to be on the mind of producers during the next couple of
1: weeks. So how critical do you think that is right now? Right where you're at today on June one? um, based on the days um, since some of these things have been applied, and, and your forecast, local forecast, what what's your prognosis? Is are we in a real emergency state, or or uh, are we going to just you know are we going to lose the activity of these things completely, or do you think we're gonna we're gonna catch catch some uh, rains here coming up?
2: So there's there's two different projections that occurred. So I'm going to call it sugar beets that were planted before May 10th and sugar beets that were planted after May 10th. So the earlier planted beets generally had a good soaker rain event on them. So the pre-emergence products were activated and they're carrying the load up until today. Now, some of those products are running out of gas. They're, uh, they're meant to be layered applications, so they're in need of the next application. The, application. the planting that occurred after May 10th, in many cases, they have not had a good rain event to get activation of, of weeds, of, of herbicides for weed control. So we're struggling a little bit on, on those. And I would say that everybody is going to be looking for rain to get the next, um, the the two-leaf sugar beet sprays that are, like I mentioned, soil residual herbicides activated. So I think our, our prognosis, Seth, is we're okay, but we need rain in the next seven to 10 days or we're going to have some serious uh, escapes with pigweed um, as we get into the middle parts of, of, of June.
0: You know, one of the things, Tom, that you and I have talked about in the past is uh, maybe folks might have some reluctance on putting the pre on the first place because of the dry weather, but, you know, these these weed seeds, um, you know, they're they're not all germinated as well uh, with that. So we can ex- anticipate not only in sugar beets but in other crops as well uh, uh, a flush down the road here in situations with that. So in a crop like sugar beets, are there good post-emergence options, or how important is timing? Uh, you you alluded to uh, acetofen or, or blazer as as well, but uh, are there other other products, or is it is it hard to really get um, products cleared and labeled for sugar beets?
2: Yeah. So that's a, that's a very important comment. So a couple of things on that one. So first of all, sugar beet is a 1 million acre crop in the United States. So Seth and Dave, if you're in the business of developing new herbicides and you're uh, in industry, are you going to target a 1 million acre crop Or are you going to target a 90 million acre crop? And of course, you're going to target the bigger acres. So the best bet that a sugar beet grower has is the product that you've developed in soybean can also be um, developed for sugar beets, that there's sufficient um, crop safety to sugar beets. So our battle has been to try to develop new products. Then interestingly, the the second challenge that we've had is with Roundup Ready crops. So I mentioned earlier that I helped to develop Roundup Ready crops, including Roundup Ready sugar beets. And I'm extremely proud of the work that we did back during the 90s and the early 2000s. Unfortunately, Roundup Ready crops prevented some of the other companies from either developing new sugar beet products or re registering the old products. So, a lot of my work today is with re registering products that um, were previously used in sugar beets. So, I'm going to give an example to that. So, I'm in progress of getting um, an active ingredient called fenmetapham which was sold during the 1970s and 80s under the trade name Batenol. So the current manufacturer is a company called Belsham. They're based in Belgium and their version of Fenmetafam is called Spinade. So we're, we're re-registering old chemistry to help fill some of the niches that we've created with the lack of new chemistry, um, and my goal is is to eventually re-register um, um, a related chemistry to fenmetamam called desmetamam, so that we can get both pigweed control and team that up with kochia and 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 common ragweed control from the fenmetamam. So getting these products approved, especially post-emergence, is a a very important component of my job.
0: We should mention that from a glyphosate standpoint, uh, think of products like Roundup and so forth, we're really obviously running into resistance issues, um, so it wasn't the easy button it once was, especially not only for sugar bee growers, but for growers of other commodity crops as well.
2: Yeah, so, so Roundup is still a very effective herbicide in sugar beet production. However, you can't use Roundup alone. You have to use Roundup in what I like to call complex mixtures, and that could be a combination of two or three other products to get broad-spectrum weed control in sugar beets. That's what it takes to be successful. And then it goes back to what you've both alluded to earlier. Um, Sugar beets don't have tremendous tolerance to any herbicide. So they have to detoxify these herbicides. And especially when we make a cocktail of three or four herbicides, sometime we have to be really careful on the rates that we're using or we have to be mindful of the environmental conditions since they all contribute to both weed control and crop safety. So we have this balancing act that we play. Um, I would like to say that every day I make a recommendation, my recommendation is good for that day only, because tomorrow's weather conditions, size of weeds or size of the crop is going to dictate what tomorrow's recommendation is.
1: You... um. Uh, you've been you've been talking a little bit around the edges on on some of the things you're working on, and I know you've been up in the uh, up north uh, planting some sugar beets this week. And so you're just finally we were able to finally catch you in your office this morning. You're finally able to put a good good shirt on. You look pretty nice there. Um, so uh, I assume that uh, you've been you've been working out in the field. So what uh, what kind of projects do you have going in the ground this year?
2: Yeah, well it's interesting. We've talked a lot about water hemp. But believe it or not, kochia is making a comeback. I would call kochia the weed of the year so far. And um, it doesn't grow as uniform or consistent as water hemp in fields. It's usually along the edges of fields. But we, we've seen a lot of kochia already this year, um, Seth. And and one of the products that I'm trying to develop for kochia control is the mo- the molecule that I mentioned a few minutes ago, fenmetam or spinaid So, a lot of our experiments so far deal with investigating crop safety and weed control from spinaid applied alone or applied in combination with. Um, Um, ethyfumazate or Nortron herbicide and Roundup in in a mixture. So we're looking at different rates. Um, We're trying to make the applications on various size kochia just to to try to optimize the crop safety and and weed control that we get from SpinAid on kochia in sugar beets. In a couple of weeks, we'll start our work on common ragweed. Uh, most of our uh, strategies for common ragweed control are post-emergence, um, and they use uh, an active ingredient called clupirolid, or or it's sold under the name of Stinger. So, and again, we'll be tank mixing Stinger with SpinAid to see if we can get um, improved. Um, common ragweed control as compared to Stinger alone, and then the other big project that that I've been working on, and I'm finally at at liberty to to indicate this, is we're working on the next generation biotech product, which is a combination of um, Roundup PowerMax with two other active ingredients, dicamba, and also Liberty. So it would be Sugar Beet's version of the Extendamax um, soybean that that soybean growers have access to. So we're still several years away from getting that product approved, but my work is to investigate the uh, the strategy that we're gonna use to Combine glyphosate, Liberty, and dicamba with some of our existing um, herbicides, and I want to really emphasize this to the to the growers, Dave and Seth. We will not be using Roundup, dicamba, and Liberty alone. We'll be using those actives in a um, in a in a, a strategy that combines them with some of the traditional herbicides that we've been using, because we have to, we've got to ensure that we don't increase the likelihood of herbicide resistance.
1: And you said those are are going to be. Um, I mean, this is kind of detail, but uh, th- these are these are um, these are going to come in, in the bottle. All. Uh all mixed? Are we going to have a tank mix? My question fundamentally is, are farmers going to have to be applying dicamba every time they want to want to make a pass um, with your system? Is that just, is that, are we looking at lots and lots of applications of dicamba on a lot of acres?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So I need to also mention that it starts with the seed. So the seed is a biotech seed that'll be different from the seed that growers currently are using. And, and that seed is going to be sold under the, the brand name Truvera. So Truvera seed will uh, is seed that will have the ability to tolerate both Liberty herbicide and dicamba in addition to um, to glyphosate or Powermax. So in terms of the system, I, I envision that we're gonna use dicamba early, Seth. So we're gonna use dicamba either pre-emergence or at the two leaf sugar beet stage. So our Achilles heel in sugar beet production is getting the early application activated into the soil. And one of the attributes of dicamba is it's very water soluble. So we think that using dicamba pre-emergence or at the two-leaf stage will allow us to get good early season weed control of, of broadleaf weeds like pigweed.
1: Sounds great and, for and an any, April April planting, um, for sure.
2: Exactly. and 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 you know that that um, two leaf application will will ensure that we have a clean start and we don't have any uh, lambs quarters or kosher or, or you know early germinating pig weeds that are competing with our slow growing sugar beet so i don't see any you know in a perfect world and we plant early i don't see the dicamba applications being may applications I see them being April, maybe the first week of May applications.
0: Well, Tom, we're getting close to the end of our time here, but any uh, last thoughts about this year's growing season um, that you would have for producers? Because obviously, you know, they're growing sugar beets in a rotation. Um, They're growing other crops such as corn, soybeans, uh, small grain, and so forth. But any last thoughts about what you can do to help yourself in terms of, we control maybe other things coming going forward especially in this year we're drier we're going to be variable rainfall going forward here but you know taking that holistic you know total farm view uh in in terms of that whether it's a nemesis is, is water hamper kosha but any any last thoughts here just to give recommendations across the board here as we close
2: yeah thanks for for the opportunity and i have um some words of wisdom for the listeners. So with with any crop or any crop planted in a rotation, record keeping and um, a strategic approach to weed management is critical. And that's especially important in sugar beet production. So I'll give you an example to that. Um, sugar beets usually are planted, Um, following small grains in the northern part of the valley, and they're usually planted following corn in the southern part of the valley or west central Minnesota. So um, you have to be careful of thinking about rotational crops and rotational crop safety. So last fall was extremely dry in September, October, maybe even to November. And then as we mentioned, we had frozen soils or snow on our soils um, well into late March, early April. So we didn't see a lot of degradation of herbicides. Degradation occurs because soil microbes eat the herbicide residues. And microbes need heat and water, so without a lot of degradation, we have some herbicide carryover concerns from what we used last year, either in the crops previous to sugar beets, or even in some cases the desiccants that gr- uh, growers used for dry beans or 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 um, or other crops that they had in in the sequence. So. My point for everybody is record keeping is absolutely paramount. Plan your strategy, make sure that you know and understand what the crop rotation um, restrictions are to the products that you're using in sequence with sugar beets and be mindful that environmental conditions influence the degradation of those products.
1: Very good advice for us this year. I think that was, that was really helpful. And um, uh, I, we, we really appreciate chatting with you today. This is really interesting. I think uh, this is a nice kickoff for, uh, for our little podcast here. So I'm sure you're going to garner us tens of uh, listens for sure. Uh, really, uh, really crank up our uh, numbers here for us, Tom. So it's it's really, really, you know, it, and honestly, if, if no one listens, I had a really good time chatting with you today. So this is a good excuse uh, to get together and, and have a little conversation.
0: So thank- well,
2: I've enjoyed it. Thanks for making uh, time. Thanks for being flexible with me. Um, we have a big field program. I, I have 25 locations. Um, scattered from Bathgate, North Dakota, which is right on the Canada border, all the way down to Cosmos, which is, um, I think, a good bicycle ride from um, the western suburbs of the Twin Cities. So we have a, a a very expanded network of locations and we're happy to say that we finally have them all planted.
0: Well, thank you again, Tom. We appreciate uh, you had the honor of being the first guest Here on our new podcast program, again, uh, this is University of Minnesota uh, podcast program, Minnesota CropCast. Uh, Your uh, moderators have been Dave Nicolai with University of Minnesota Extension and Dr. Seth Nave, Extension Soybean uh, Specialist. And so, Tom, thanks again. Uh, Good luck, and we'll be talking to you soon.
2: Thank you for both of you. I enjoyed it.